Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody today, and um, I'm so glad that we could be here to uh, worship together. Um, welcome again to the second uh, Sunday of the Advent season, and we're so excited about that. Uh, some people call it the Christmas season, but we call it the Advent season, where we're celebrating the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Roland. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, throughout this entire month, we are going to be focusing on the person and the physical birth of Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah of the world who came to bring salvation, life, and joy to planet Earth and all who are in. So with that in mind, let's pray and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we thank you um, so much for your good word to us today. God, we thank you that as we celebrate the birth, the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that, God, this is really the crux of all that we believe and do, that Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, came to humble himself and lay down his life to save. And, God, we thank you that in the midst of this time of uh, Christmas, we not only slow down to celebrate with uh, friends and family, but, God, most of all, we uh, really celebrate and commune with you. God, we pray that you would help us to refocus our priorities, refocus our efforts, refocus um, all that we do, that we, our lives might really revolve around the sun. And God, we're asking for those who do not yet know you today to have their eyes opened and that you would bring understanding, that they might see you clearly and respond to you in kind through the cross of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so today we are going to continue our series, Declarations of the Advent. And what we've been doing over the course of the past several weeks is we've been going through a series talking about the different declarations that we make as Christians, declarations that God himself instituted, God himself initiated to help us walk with him as believers, to help us walk with him and stand in the faith that he's called us to. And so last week we started the Advent season uh, talking about a particular declaration that was made by the Isaiah, um, prophet Isaiah who was a prophet in Israel, a modern-day Israel, who spoke 700 years before the incarnation or the coming of Jesus Christ. And whenever we see the prophets, last week was uh, called Prophecy Sunday, and it starts off all of the discussion of Jesus and his advent or his coming as what the advent actually means because of the fact that it's a great apologetic or a great defense of the faith, which means that 700 years prior to Jesus showing up on the scene and fulfilling all that the scriptures said he was here to fulfill, the prophets were declaring it because God Almighty was always saying that he is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he declares from ancient times what is still yet to come. Because he's the creator, he's the one who knows the end from the beginning. And because he knows the end from the beginning, regardless of all the chaos and regardless of all of the trouble that's going on around us, he said, in the end, I'm still in control. 
And in the end, I'm still sovereign. And in the end, I'm still the one who is coming to make all things right. He made the planet, he made us, and he's coming to redeem it all through his son, Jesus. And so uh, even as we were talking about the prophets last week and the prof- some of the prophecies that were made about Jesus, I wanted to lay out for you the next several weeks of the Advent season. This week is particularly known in the church world as Preparation Sunday. And so we'll be talking about preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord. Um, Next week, as we continue the Advent season, it's known many times in the church world as a Sunday that focuses on the joy that the coming of Jesus brings. And then finally, in the fourth week, right before Christmas Eve and Christmas Day itself, it's celebrating adoration or the praise of God or the peace that he brings and the love that he brings through Jesus and his entry into the world. But I like how this week is set up for us by a man named Benjamin Hedick. He said the second week of, uh, of Advent is basically focuses on preparation because over many centuries, God prepared the hearts of the Jews for Christ's coming. That's what the Old Testament was about. He, Jesus would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in the Old Testament prophets, they were preparing the people of God for Jesus coming into the world. But in the New Testament, in the church, both those Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, and also the church, the Gentiles who were brought in and who were looking forward to Jesus' ultimate return, it said that just as he is now working in our hearts, the church to prepare us for Christ's second coming, that's what the Advent season is about just as well. So initially it was about the first coming of Christ, but in preparation now we're preparing for the second coming of Christ, which is ultimately his return. So today, as far as our declarations are concerned, we are going to declare this together, I will prepare for the coming of the Lord. I will prepare for the coming of the Lord. And that's absolutely something that should mark every one of our lives, that our lives are built in such a way that we are preparing for the coming of the Lord. Just as the Jews did, were preparing for the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament, as the church in the New Testament were preparing for his second advent, his return. And we want to build our lives in such a way that when he shows up, we're found to be in his pleasure, we're found to be right with God, we're found to be those who give him glory with all that we think, say, and do with our lives. So if you're taking notes today, we have to ask this question, how in fact do I prepare for the coming of the Lord? How do I build my life in such a way that I prepare for the coming of the Lord? And to to discuss that today, we're going to talk about it in three forms. Number one, to prepare for the coming of the Lord, you've got to, number one, recognize his nature. There's no preparing for the coming of the Lord without recognizing who he truly is. Number two, you've got to recognize his work. If you're going to prepare for God Almighty to come and meet with you, you've got to be able to receive him, not only as he is, but you've got to receive what he's done for you. And then number three, if you're going to prepare for the coming of the Lord, you've got to recognize your role, your role in that preparation. So number one, recognizing his nature, number two, recognizing his work, and then number three, recognizing your role in that preparation. So let's read today in Luke chapter one. 
Luke was obviously one of the Gospels, one of the uh, synoptics, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's basically the biographies of Jesus. It's the clearest form of record of how we know who Jesus was, what he said about himself, and what he did when he had his earthly ministry. And so we see that there were four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew was a gospel or a biography that was written to a Jewish audience, those who were already familiar with the law of God that was prescribed in the Old Testament. And so as you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll often see references to the fact that as it is written, and what they were talking about when they said as it is written, they were talking about Old Testament prophecies that would be fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. When you look at the gospel of Mark, you see that it was basically a man who was writing many scholars think that he was writing as a scribe for the apostle Peter, who was one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. And he was one of the earlier followers, one of the earlier pillars of the church in the New Testament. And then we also come to Luke. Luke was um, not one of the early 12 apostles of Jesus, but he was a physician. He was a medical doctor. And I I love that because it shows us that regardless of your profession, you can have a dynamic, important place in the ongoing story, unfolding story of the kingdom of God. That in the midst of his profession, he was used as a class A historian to actually record the accounts of Jesus' life, his miracles, his sinless life, his miracles of death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And Luke's recording some of the life of Christ during this writing of Luke's gospel. And so today, when we're talking about preparation, we're going to talk about it in two sets of people. Number one, the preparation that uh, John the Baptist's parents had in his coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And then number two, in the life of Mary, who was the virgin mother of Jesus, who was had to prepare her life and her way for the Lord as well. And so we're going to pick it up in Luke's gospel, starting in Verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, who we just referred to as John the Baptist, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, another Old Testament prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people 
prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, just like he said. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. But let's go on. said, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Of his kingdom there will be no end. So what we see very practically is that God was setting up the scene. He'd been doing it for hundreds of years through the prophets. He'd been doing it through hundreds of years through the people of God being obedient to the law of God, but failing and ultimately needing a savior, one who would come and rescue them from their own mistakes, one who would come and rescue them from their own sins. And it wasn't just the people of Israel. It was all of humanity. It was all of the world that was created by God for a relationship with God, but had gone astray because of the sin or the rebellion that was in their hearts. But God provided a solution for this, and he said, ultimately, I'm coming, and in my coming, I'm going to provide a rescue for the entire world. And to be able to prepare for the coming of the Lord, ultimately, just as the people of Israel did, we have to do first this thing. We've got to recognize Jesus in his nature. Last week when Pastor Cole was talking, he was speaking out of Isaiah chapter 9, and whenever he was speaking, he was referring to uh, Isaiah's words. And if you recall the words of Isaiah, he said four things about God who would be coming, four things about the Messiah, four things about Jesus who would show up on the scene. He predicted this 700 years before his coming. He would be called, number one, wonderful counselor, number two, mighty God, without apology, And without stuttering, he would be called Mighty God. He would be called Everlasting Father, and he would be called Prince of Peace. And if you are going to prepare yourself for the coming and the ultimate return of Jesus Christ, the first thing that we must do, that we have to do, is recognize him for who he is. That he is, in fact, Mighty God. 
fully God and fully man. In the modern church, what we often do is we get hyped up on our sort of contemporary scene. We deviate away from the hymns that many times are preaching the good news of the gospel to us and in the hymns teaching us theology. We go through different choruses that often are more times appealing to our emotions than to our mind and to our intellect that are building us and founding us in the truth of who God is and what he's actually done for us. But if we are to relate to God properly, if we were to relate to Jesus properly, we've got to relate to him as he is. And there's something in the church world, in theology, that's called the hypostatic union. How many people have heard of this before? Whenever you're talking about Jesus, you've got to understand who he is in his nature, that he is number one fully man, yes, born of a virgin, so he's fully man, but he is also fully God. And what the hypostatic union is, is basically the combination of these two natures of Jesus in one person. Just as many of you might find yourselves to be both a son or a daughter and also a brother and a sister, one does not preclude the other. We see that in Jesus, he was both fully man and fully God. And to be able to understand this, it helps us to relate to Jesus properly. But if we only relate to him as fully man, then we won't give him the allegiance or the devotion that he deserves as God. And if we only relate to him as fully God, we won't come to him with a confidence that we could ever serve God in righteousness, holiness, purity, and in truth, because there's no example that's done it in perfection outside of us. But in Jesus, we see both fully man and fully God, a great encouragement to people who have flesh, who have flesh and blood who deal with hunger, who deal with sleepless nights, who deal with pain, who deal with suffering. We have one who was fully man, who understands it all and calls us to God in heaven and says, I understand, now follow my example and follow my way. But not only am I fully man who understands your weakness, but I'm fully God, fully God who's able to empower you and set you free from the sin that's beset you up to this point. That I'm God Almighty who will come and make a home inside of you and set you free internally from the slavery and the bondage that kept you from living according to my way. There was something back in the early church called the Athanasian Creed. And it was basically the church trying to understand what's called Christology, the nature of Jesus. How many of you have heard of Christology before? Okay, just as theology is the study of God, Christology is the study of Christ, Jesus the Christ, and his nature. And in understanding Jesus the Christ and his nature and the hypostatic union, the mixture of the two in the one person of Christ, the Athanasian Creed said it this way. It said, he is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of the mother, born in time, completely God, completely human with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. 
This is what's called the incarnation. Jesus never stopped being God, but instead he became flesh. He took on flesh so that he might dwell amongst us and walk amongst us understanding that which we experience, understanding our weakness, our pain, our suffering, yet be a merciful high priest in the service of God who could come and actually not only relate with us, but deliver us from our sin. And he said in this, he is one. Certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both a rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Both God and human. And because he's both God and human, you have one who rules and has the power to set you free. But you also have one who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses so that when you come to the throne of grace, you might in fact receive mercy in times of need. Because you don't have somebody who's giving you commands that they in fact have never walked out themselves. He says, not only do I command you to do these things, I've, I've shown you the way. Not only have I given you an example to follow, but I'm the one who humbles myself to give you the ability to do it. He says, if you're going to relate to him as he is, you've got to relate to him, number one, as God. You've got to relate to him as God. But number two, you have to also recognize not only his person, but also his work. And if you recognize his work, this helps you to run, <laughs> to receive from Jesus humbly. Just as recognizing his person helps you to relate to Jesus properly, recognizing his work helps you to receive from Jesus humbly. To receive from Jesus humbly. What do we mean by this? We know that whenever Jesus was born... It says, or before he was born, the angel Gabriel appeared to uh, Mary, the virgin mother, and he said, listen, I'm telling you, this is going to be his name. His name is to be Jesus. His name is to be Jesus, which literally means God saves. God saves. Jesus wasn't a unique name and in the midst of the Hebrew culture. It was a name that was often used by Hebrew boys uh, um, and uh, the parents giving it to their children during that time. But in the culture, as opposed to our culture today where names are just given because they're cool, right? It's sort of like, yo, my kid's name is Brooklyn. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, that's great. <laughs> you know, but it's sort of like they, they give it because it sounds good, right? Back in the Hebrew culture, they actually had significance attached to the name. And in that name, Jesus was being named that because he was saying, listen, I'm identifying that which God is going to do for you. God is, in fact, going to save. Now, a couple weeks ago, we started with the idea that he would also be named Emmanuel. How many people remember that, right? He said, what, what, what is it? Is that his first name and his middle name, Jesus Emmanuel? No. He's basically saying, I'm giving you two different identities, First of all, Emmanuel is going to describe to you what we just talked about, who Jesus is, God with us, where Jesus would actually describe for you what he would do. He would come to save. Emmanuel describes his identity. Jesus describes his work. And you've got to understand both if you're going to not only relate to him properly, but then receive from him humbly. 
when Jesus describes himself as a savior, he's basically saying, I'm the savior of all mankind, all mankind, and especially of those who believe. What that means is not that everybody's going to be saved, but it does mean that he gives access to everyone through the cross. He gives access to everyone to the salvation that he's provided to them through the cross. And he says it's his desire that all men, all women would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that what the Bible says? He says just as he created the whole world and he loves the whole world, he said the reason Jesus, the Son of God, appeared was to destroy the devil's work in your life, in my life, and to provide salvation for the world. To say that the patterns that were passed down to you, the empty way of life handed down to you by um, uh, by parents and grandparents, what we call generational curses. Anybody know what I'm talking about when you talk about generational curses? You see destructive patterns going over and over again in between families, breaking families apart, breaking down mental states, breaking down emotional states, breaking people relationally apart. He said, I've come to destroy that work. But that's not just through me being Emmanuel, that's me coming as Jesus, the one who comes to save you from your sins. And what we've got to recognize, if we're going to relate to him properly, is not only who he is, but what he's come to do. He's literally come to save us from our sins. In fact, that things can be different in our lives. It doesn't matter what patterns we entered into this place with today. Because Jesus has come, and because he's making a return, you can be different as you leave. When you meet Jesus, he's come to save you, and he's come to transform you. You can be saved from your sins. Your family can be saved from their sins, and he can start a new legacy. How do we know that? Because whenever he anointed John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, he said, listen, he's going to be anointed with the spirit and power of Elijah. And what's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the children to the right um, to the parents, and he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. He's saying, I'm not just coming to preach that, but I'm giving you the power to do that through Jesus, the one who would show up and save you from the things that kept you from that before. That's the good news of the gospel. And if anyone has come in here not knowing how to enter into this, it's simply this. Repent, which means change your mind in the way that you are going and believe the good news. Believe the good news that you can go in a different direction, that God who came in the advent can save you from that destructive pattern and that you can leave a new man or a new woman created from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who comes to give you new life. And if you're a believer who's been stuck in patterns of sin and Though you believe you have cycles of destructive relationships or destructive habits running rampant in your life, Jesus, who comes to save, is just as applicable for you. Jesus, though you might have met him simply as Emmanuel, he's also Jesus the Christ, who comes to save you as a Christian from the sins that are besetting you now. And he can set you free internally from those patterns today so that you can receive humbly from him. But it means that I've got to relate to him as he is. Number one, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. But number two, Jesus, he comes to save me. I've got to believe that. He is not just the savior, he's my savior. Hello, 
He's not just the Savior of the world. He's my Savior. Jesus, my Savior. I've met Jesus, and Jesus has changed me. And until you've had an encounter where Jesus has changed you, you might not have been born again. That's why Jesus said that unless you're born again, you can't see or enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because you've got to meet Jesus, the Savior, one who comes to set you free. And if you repent and believe the good news today, that's available to you. But it's not just recognizing his person. It's not just recognizing his work. It's also recognizing your place in it. And recognizing in your place, your place in it, in preparing the way of the Lord, it basically helps you to pursue or run after Christ's purposes passionately. Recognizing his person helps you to relate to him properly. Recognizing his work helps you to receive from him humbly. Recognizing, basically recognizing the, <clears throat> recognizing your role helps you to pursue Christ and his purposes with the in between the A and Z passionately. What I mean between the A and Z, in between the point where you actually recognize him and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Jesus, you're the Christ. Jesus, you're my Savior. And then the rest of life, right? That, that's really the issue at the end of the day, right? First, the two big issues are, number one, am I going to receive him as he is, as Lord? Am I going to recognize him as God? And then, in between then and when you meet Jesus, whether by your death or his return, Am I going to, in between A and Z, those two points run after him and his kingdom purposes passionately? That's what it comes down to, right? Isn't that it? Because what life uh, gets into is the rigmarole. What life gets into are the, the mundanities of responsibility, and not only the mundanities of responsibility, but the pressures of life, and not only the pressures of life, but also this subtle seduction of pleasures that come in according to Jesus and try to choke the word, making it unfruitful in your life, right? That's what Jesus said. It's not just the worries of this life, but it's the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for pleasures or other things that come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. But if we could recognize our role in preparing for the coming of the Lord, then we're actually continually saying in each and every day, I'm going to prepare to pursue his purposes passionately. And that's what John the Baptist did, right? John the Baptist was set apart even from his birth, and he had a kind of consecration to God where specifically, specifically his parents were told, listen, I want you to raise this child in a particular manner because he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord and he's going to prepare the way for Jesus and his coming and he's going to turn, his life is going to be useful and effective in turning many to righteousness, right? So it wouldn't just be about his personal consecration, but it would be about his personal consecration impacting the world around him and actually preparing them to receive the Christ as well right? It wasn't just his personal holiness or his personal being set apart in the desert wearing weird clothes and eating strange food, right? He survived on locusts and wild honey and was like dressed in basically canvas. That, was, that wasn't the point of all of his life. It wasn't just that he kept himself from wine and strong drink so that he wouldn't get caught up in the culture around him, right? But instead, there was a consecration unto purposely and intentionally and ardently pursuing the purposes of Christ. 
It's ultimately, as I was talking to one of our friends even this past week, this generation is always looking for the way to find their voice, right? Finding your voice in this generation is important. What type of contribution are we going to give to the world around us? What type of way are we going to make an impact? And in Zechariah's case, John's father, he lost his voice whenever he couldn't come into agreement with the purposes of God for he, Elizabeth, and the child that was to be born. Because of his unbelief, he was silenced. And in the same way, many of us are looking for a sense of satisfaction or purpose in our days, but find none of it because you're trying to find it on your own outside of agreement with what God himself has spoken over you in your life. And God's saying, come back into agreement with me. And when you come into agreement with me, with my purposes for your life and not just what you want to pursue, then you'll find your voice. And whenever he came back into agreement with the fact that his child to be born would be named John. Why John? Because he would be a forerunner for the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Then he was able to speak again. And if you continue to read Luke's account, you see him giving praise to God and prophesying all about what his son would do. Helping him find the Christ and helping him be a forerunner for all who would come after him. That is your destiny. To find your voice when you ardently pursue the purposes of God. And do not try to find satisfaction outside of that. Because there's all, it is all contextualized. It is all contextualized. Jesus said, I'm the author of life and in me, in me, positionally is life. Is life. Outside of him. You're searching for it, you're striving for it, but there is none. And it's like Jeremiah the prophet talked about, we become vessels that are cracked. Always having water poured into it, but always being a little bit leaky. Always having the joy and the satisfaction leak out. Doesn't matter how many trips I take, doesn't matter how many bars I go to, doesn't matter how many relationships I find myself in, without being in him, I'm a leaky pot. I'm a leaky vessel. But Jesus said, come back to me and find life. And through me, you'll have life abundant and the life that is truly life. You see, building your life in and through him. You understand not only his work, but you understand our role in that consecration, then you don't worry. You don't even worry about pursuing things that many people are saying, listen, I'm not living for pleasure, but I'm living for tomorrow. I'm just trying to build a castle for myself that's going to provide security for me and my family at some point, and then everything will be taken care of. But he says, even that's a leaky pot. Even that's a leaky pot if you're not contextualizing that in the purposes and person of God. I like what Corey Ten Boom said. How many people know who Corey Ten Boom is? Okay, Corey Ten Boom said, "Worrying is tomorrow's load. <laughs> Worrying is tomorrow's load. Carrying rather tomorrow's load with today's strength. Carrying two days at once. It is moving in tomorrow, into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It actually empties today of its strength." It doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. 
And many people are trying to pursue other things other than God and his purposes, hoping to get rid of worry tomorrow. And what it in fact does is empties today of its strength. Why? Because the strength comes by finding yourself contextualized in the purposes of God. That's what John the Baptist did. Until his days, he was set apart for the purposes of God to help prepare the way of the Lord. He says, I'm prepared and I'm consecrating myself. Whatever it is that God's telling me not to be a part of, I'm not a part of. And let me tell you something. That's not just the written commands of God. It's also what the Holy Spirit speaks to you. It's also what the Holy Spirit speaks to you. For some of you, you need to cut off things that other people don't need to cut off. Not everyone was told not to drink wine or not to drink strong drink like John the Baptist was. That was a particular consecration for him. Why? Because for him, he needed to be set apart in a particular way to fulfill the purposes that God had for him. And some of you have only stopped at the commands of God, but still find your, the written commands of God and find yourself weak because you've not pressed in to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. What is it and what ways is he trying to tell you to consecrate yourself that you might be set apart for his purposes to actually prepare yourself for him and others for his coming? And in this Advent season, that's part of what we need to press into. God, not just your commands, but Holy Spirit, what way do you want me to be set apart that I might participate in preparing not only myself but others for your coming? I wrote it down this way. It may be for some of you a business or an organization to help the poor that gives glory to God. Some of you might be called to do something like that. What is it that God wants to birth in you and through you? For others of you, it might be helping. So I know some of you are being trained for ministry, helping to establish a church for a pillar of truth in a city. For some of you who are going to be parents, it may be children. He wants to birth through you who will be disciples carrying Christ's name to the nations. Whatever it is, like John the Baptist, you are called to help restore families, turn the wicked to righteousness, and help make a people ready to meet Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, when we say, I'm going to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, that's ultimately all of our call and the claim that he has upon all of our lives. And so today, practically, what does that mean for us as we finish? It means this, that Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one heaven to the other. Jesus said, I'm coming back, and he means it. We've got to be ready. How are we ready? Titus 2, 11 through 14 says it this way. He says, we come into the grace of God. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from, the lawlessness, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you've never considered Jesus, now is your time to put your trust in him today as God and Savior to prepare for Christ's inevitable return. The cross of Jesus provides for forgiveness of sins that you might meet him as an adopted child and not a foe. 
If you already know Jesus, wherever you are, we can all repent of self-centered living and serve Jesus as king. Actually serve him as king with rule and lordship in our lives, in your relationships, with your time, with your resources, and with your pursuits. And then finally, in this Advent season, we can actively develop a heart of consecration, just like John the Baptist had, that you might and I might develop a life that's useful in helping others become ready to meet the Lord. We talk about it in our announcements, we talk about it in all our preaching and our teaching, but the call is, ultimately, Jesus is coming. Jesus has come, and he is coming. That's what the Advent season is about. And so because he has, and because he is, we need to live prepared today. In Jesus' name. All right, worship team.